takes a lot to get on my show. Genius, you're probably someone we'd like to know. You're really good at stuff, you probably like to dance. You like long walks and you wear clean pants. Genius, get onto my show. Howdy, folks. Welcome to Living with a Genius. I'm your host, Omar Crook. For my summer flashback episode today, I bring to you James Conlon, maestro James Conlon, the conductor of the L.A. Opera Orchestra. He conducts all over the world. I know he's got another position, I think, in Rome as well that's new, and he does summer festivals, uh, and he's got tons of recordings. I think he's won three Grammys now, the last being Ghosts of Versailles uh, that I participated on, too, Grammy winner Omar Crook. Uh, I, I really like James. He's a scholar. He is uh, fun to work with. He's uh, a very good colleague. And I don't know, you know, he's my boss. So I guess I'm biased. But I'd say that about him if I if he weren't my boss, because he really is. He's great. Hope you're all having a great summer. I'm going to take a few more weeks off here. My producer and I are putting together a pretty good plan here to get this show really cooking. I've got some tremendous uh, interviews lined up. I've already got Moira Smiley, actually, sorry, Mora Smiley in the can. She's delightful. I'll put her out in a few weeks. I'm working on uh, uh, Jasper. Let's see, when is he? I think he's on the on the seventh coming up. I'm going to be talking to. Uh, let's see, yeah, be talking to Jasper on the seventh. For those of you in town, you know who he is. Big vocal contractor. Probably the biggest vocal contractor in town. I've got uh, John Alexander coming up. Oh, very excited, too. It's not sealed yet, but I think I'm going to be talking to Susan Bennett, the voice of Siri. I can't wait to ask her what it feels like to have millions of people screaming obscenities at her every day because Siri is so terrible. I hope she doesn't take it personally, but I'm going to ask her. Anyway, happy Monday. Have a great day. Enjoy the rest of your week. Here's James. We just start talking. You ask. That's it. You ask and I answer. That, that's mostly it. It's like a deposition. Okay. All right. <laughs> Thanks for being on the show, Maestro. It's my pleasure. It's really, my really pleasure. a thrill. I mean, I, you know, I've been here for 11 seasons and uh, you've been here for 10 now. 10. Yeah. Yeah. And I've always wanted to sit down and chat with you, even before this podcast. I, I just think you're so fascinating. And so great at what you do it's always nice to talk to my uh, a master so. you're very kind thank you <laughs> okay so i'm obviously going to ask you some questions that i know yeah you're yeah you're fine yeah yeah, yeah. we can just put it right, right around okay. there okay um so you're from new york is that right from new york new york new york new york born in southern manhattan okay and were your parents in music i've no. never no no uh i come from a uh, I wouldn't say an amusical family, but a non-musical family. Yeah. Uh, the closest mu musician, practicing musician that I know of with certainty is my great-grandfather, who was an Italian immigrant who came from Basilicata, the south of Italy, and came to New York in the 1880s. That's the closest one. I suspect that my mother's, that's my mother's mother. Yeah. Right? And I suspect that the grandfather, who was German, same generation, mm -hmm. might have been an at least an amateur musician, but in, that's in, a suspicion. I, it's not. A in what way were they the singers or, or well, pianists? The, or? I I know that uh, I, the only thing I know with certainty is that 
the Italian great-great-grandfather was a musician because it so states as occupation on his death certificate. Sure. He died in 1899. Oh, my gosh. Uh, the German great-grandfather was in possession of an enormous collection of organ manuals written in German, in Old German, which were a family heirloom. Which and you came, still have them. You, uh, you, they, well, they're yeah. stacked away in New York somewhere. Sure, but, sure. But uh, so that leads one to think that he probably was an organist. That's all I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have two brothers and two sisters. Everybody loves music, but I'm you're the only. Musician. I'm the only musician, professional musician. Right. So, growing up in a non, basically non-musical family, how did you? First of all, how were you exposed to classical music, and and how did you come to decide to do it as a vocation? I was exposed, although not realizing it uh, so much, um, in that my mother uh, insisted on having WQXR, which was the New York uh, classical music, uh, on. When the radio was on, that's what it was turned to. Sure. Uh, she, my mother loved music, mm -hmm. uh, but was not a musician. What were they? What were their uh, professions? My mother's profession was with five children. Yeah, sure. She took care of the family, and that was the, that was in the days when there were less opportunities for women. Mm -hmm. uh, my mother was extremely bright. She wrote. In fact, when all the children were gone, she did write for a local newspaper. Uh, but that's what you did in those days. Sure. Uh, my father ha held various government jobs, and I think the one he liked the most it was the assistant commissioner of labor of New York City. For a brief time, wow! You know, it's a political job, so you know you have your seven years. I think that's what he was. Sure. Uh, basically, he was a labor arbitrator. So, uh, but I think more important than his profession, because I think he might have wanted to do other things. That between the two of them, my father and especially, uh, we were brought up in a household with a uh, super consciousness of, of of history, of social issues of uh, political life. Mm -hmm. My father had a, an encyclopedic mind uh, wow. for literature, for history. He loved all of these things, the mm -hmm. Bible, Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. My father seemed to have, he read all of his life and that seemed to be, you know, what he loved the most. Sure. So um, I was, and I being the fourth of the five children was on the younger side of all that. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a lot of conversation going on over my head at the dinner table uh, from a young age, and I benefited from it because I learned a lot. Sure. And so uh, I came to being a musician not from having an instrument shoved under my chin or being put up on a piano stool okay. against his will. Uh, when I came to music, it was fully my choice and my passion, but I had a lot of other things in my life uh, that were important to me and what they was, remained important. Yeah, what was pulling at you besides music at the time? When, baseball. I mean, baseball. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> baseball. No, but I mean the interest the in, the interest in uh, in history and reading and travel because I from the, I can't even remember when I first started thinking I want to go to Europe, I want to go to Russia, I want to sure. see the world. So at 11 years old uh, by a by a, almost a freak accident, mm -hmm. um, I went to the opera. Mhm. Mm uh, and yeah, how, to, how did that come to pass? It came to pass. It sounds like you've read somewhere and you know what to ask. Uh, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> right, my best friend mm. in school, his name was, named, was named Walter, who was the son of German immigrants, mm -hmm. um, highly cultured parents. His mm -hmm. mother uh, had was shocked when she came to America and found that, unlike Germany, not every city and or 
town right. has its own opera company. Right. And she, we grew up in Queens, and she didn't understand why people in Queens had to go all the way into Manhattan to see the opera. Sure. And she also, product of her times, where in Germany mo most operas were in German, she mm -hmm. did not understand why operas weren't in English. So she determined to form an opera company that gave operas in English um, in Queens, uh, in Colton Auditorium, which is a part of Queens College. So uh, the this was I, I I don't can't objectively tell you how high the level of the operas were, but I think they were pretty good. Sure. In fact, I heard Cheryl Mills there for the first time. Okay. Uh, I heard Justino Diaz there okay. for the first time. They were doing uh, just fine. George. Yeah. <laughs> there were some pretty awfully good singers there. Yeah. So they were unknown. Okay. At the time, but yeah. they weren't so unknown for long. Ear. She had an ear for well, voices. Somehow or other, that all worked out. Now, uh, Walter didn't want to go to the opera. And uh, he came to me and he said, you know, my mother's done something really dumb. She's started an opera company and she's insisting I go. And I told her I would only go if I could sit in the front row and bring a friend. So will you go with me? Yeah. So I went home and asked my mother. Oh, she was thrilled. Yeah. This is great. You can go to an opera. Yes. And we'll buy tickets. Uh, your your dad and, and I will buy tickets. We'll sit in the back. We'll sit. They must have had $2 tickets in the balcony. I don't know what. Sure. sure. I was in the front row. The opera happened to be Traviata, but I think it could have been anything. Yeah. Uh, and there were three more operas that uh, that season, maybe two months later, The Barber Seville, and that's what really did it. I think from that moment on, I was totally, uh, just totally smitten. I did see Fledermaus, and I did see Don Giovanni in the same. But yeah. within months, all I could think about was music. It had set something off in me that I didn't really know was there. And I asked for piano lessons, and about half a year later, I started taking violin lessons. Uh, I mean, what was it as an 11-year-old sitting in the dark theater listening to this music and watching the opera? What, was there something in particular that grabbed you? I mean, was it just being transported to a different time like you would in any theater show? Was it the, the music in particular? Well, it was, Everything. Certainly, it was certainly the music. Yeah. Uh, it was a transcendent experience. Yeah. I, I think I would not do it justice if I would try to say what it was or what it was this or was that. It was none of those things. It was everything. Everything. Yeah. And... Uh, like falling in love, mm -hmm. uh, a passion uh, with all the obsessive quality that passion brings with it and being in love brings, it happened within it happened that night and within several months it was a fact. And um, certainly I didn't know what I wanted to do right yeah. away, but all yeah. I knew is that I could not be uh, I could not be separated from hearing classical music and trying to play it and studying it. And, and uh, that passion was born then, and it has never changed. It's that I, way to this day. As an 11-year-old, uh, how does your friend group deal with it? I mean, did you suddenly, like, overnight become this music maniac? Yes. Yeah. Okay. How did, my friends? No, yeah. I was an outsider. Uh, no, I definitely, within a short time, my clear interest, the passion... Uh, was not shared by most, okay. most of my friends. Okay, and uh, but I, I wouldn't say I didn't care because you do. I mean, you do feel that, but it didn't matter, or, or it just made me more determined. I, I knew what I wanted, I knew what I loved, and I was going to pursue it. And your parents were totally. They were fine. Yeah, they were fine. Uh, they couldn't help in any practical way, but they were very supportive. Especially my mother, who was actually very, very enthusiastic because she loved music, and uh, she perceived in a fairly short time within a year or so that I was actually talented I didn't know I was talented mm -hmm. 
I you hadn't studied music. Didn't, did you have a piano in the house? Yes, there was a piano uh -huh. in the house. Mm -hmm. uh, nobody played it. Mm -hmm. uh, I used to go out and pick out tunes. That was an early sign, but sure, nothing happened. Uh, and now I recognize that I was attracted to classical music without realizing it. From, My, from we did have some. Age, well, yeah. we did. There were some records, and I, I do remember liking to listen to them. I remember and particularly Swan Lake mm -hmm. uh, because my mother had studied ballet and she loved Swan Lake. We had a, a recording of that. There were Gilbert and Sullivan records. Sure. I remember that. Um, and the radio was always on. Now, my mother then told stories much later that I used to sit in front. My older sister told me that, hmm. that I would sit in front of the radio and wouldn't move, just stared at the radio. I mean, completely absorbed. Just transfixed. I don't remember any of this. Yeah. These were very young. Uh, so obviously the attraction was there, but there's a, there's a uh, a dramatic moment when you recognize it yourself, and that's what happened in my eleventh year. Mm -hmm. I uh, had some opportunities to uh, actually then be in the children's chorus of the opera uh, because La Boheme and Hansel and Gretel came up the next year. D really, just within a year. Within of, a year, wow. so that of course that was another layer of all of this. And uh, and you had studied piano and violin. Well, I started. I no, I, you know, I heard that opera in November. Yeah. When I was eleven, <laughs> and I started getting piano lessons immediately. Wow! Uh, and I had to wait the a year until my junior high school had a string orchestra and a band. I asked to be mm -hmm. in the string orchestra so I could uh, study violin. I had to fight my way out of the typing class to which I had been assigned. Yeah. Uh, but I did manage to convince them to let me switch, and so I was able to pursue the violin in school it, with a right. private teacher too for a while. Right. But all this being said, uh, I think by the time I was 13, I think that's the time I can identify, I was in the children's course of Carmen and I oh, remember geez. how exciting the, how it was and watching the conductor and realizing it was a talented conductor and it was somebody that uh, was different from the other conductors I had seen and mm -hmm. I, I started to realize that, that that was my fascination. Now, in another sort of a way, I, uh, as a young person, said, "Oh, it'd be nice to sing opera when I grew up," uh, but I don't know if I'm going to be a baritone. And you know, I wanted to sing the baritone roles. And uh, were you practicing your voice at the time when you were thirteen? No, but I sang a lot to myself. I see. My voice changed very early. Uh huh. Uh, no, I, I, as you have heard, how bad my voice is. You well, know, I wouldn't I mean, go that far. I, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, I use it generously, if not wisely, during sure, rehearsals. Sure. Uh, no, I was, I was not destined to be a singer at all. Uh, but I think there was a moment where I realized, and it was during that Carmen production, that yeah. uh, the only way to be fully involved with the total art form was to conduct. I mean, any singer would have to. Well, your life and your t vocal category would choose for you. Sure. Whatever it was going to be limited. Yeah. And I wanted it at all. I wanted to be completely involved in every aspect of the music in as many different uh, different facets. Well, mm -hmm. facets mm -hmm. and the repertoire. I mean, I mm -hmm. even at that age, I, I, you know, I had already discerned by that age that there was a difference between a Mozart soprano and a Wagnerian and a, and a, and a uh, Puccini. Sure. So, mm -hmm. so I, I said, to myself, uh, it all became clear. The only way to do it is to be, is to conduct. 
And from that moment on, I never had another doubt about what I wanted to do. So you were, it's not that you were a heartbroken singer and you just fell back. Not at all. Wow, not that's all. amazing. Especially from that young age, that's incredible. Not a heartbroken pianist. I mean, I continued principally to study piano because, I, you know, that's the most important thing in becoming a musician is you have to play some instrument well. So I pursued my my piano, les- my piano lessons right through my Juilliard education. Uh, I, I mean, I didn't stop... I didn't stop studying piano or practicing mm-hmm. until I actually started having a career when I was 21 or 22 years old. Where it was old. a matter of time at that it point. It was a matter yeah. well, of, just not having the time. It yeah. became impossible to pursue. Yeah. But, but uh, uh, so I'm not a, a pianiste manqué, as the French say. Mm-hmm. I, I, I love to play the piano. I do wish in a certain way that you could do everything and I could have kept it up, but that's, sure. I'm certainly happy with my life the way it is. So let's track, let's track your education. You went, you went through high school, uh, luckily having instruments at your disposal. Well, so. I, I went through the New York Public School uh, uh, we sure. had, of course, music appreciation sure. in those days. Okay. Uh, and this is something I'm very devoted to, is trying to do anything I can, and I think all of us artists are and must be trying mm-hmm. to get it to come back in the schools mm-hmm. because to whatever, to whatever degree we are experiencing a crisis in America of having less of an audience and less interest than we want, mm-hmm. is I, I lay this at the fateful and unfortunate decisions made in the 80s. Yes. That uh, as, a, as a perhaps unintended side effect is that the arts fell out of school. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a serious problem for our country. I think more serious than most people understand mm-hmm. because the arts are very important for the development of the human being. That's right. Uh, and so if you have an entire population that is cut off from one of the richest sources of understanding, human That's understanding, right. uh, which are the liberal arts, uh, you have a problem mm-hmm. that many in politics do not recognize that, that many in business do not recognize this, mm-hmm. um, is a national tragedy. Uh, and we have, we, the arts institutions, are have to be the most proactive in trying to change that because nobody else is going to do it mm-hmm. for us. There is no, there is no visible uh, arm of government or state or federal uh, government that's going to change that, uh, at least in the present climate. So we have to do everything we, but I, I, uh, I think the, the two miracles of my life were that I was, I had this experience falling in love. It was opera first, but it mm-hmm. immediately translated into all sorts of other classical music. I, mean, I started going to piano recitals, mm-hmm. I started going Symphonies. to symphony mm-hmm. orchestra concerts. Mm-hmm. That's the first miracle that had happened That's at an age young, where yeah. I still could do something about yeah, it. Yeah, the truth. Yeah. And if it happened 10 years later, right. that wouldn't have worked out. And the other miracle is I was born and grew up in New York City. Mm-hmm. Because in New York City, there was everything you could possibly want and imagine. And when I was not in school, to the, to the moment that my parents would let me on the subway alone, I was at concerts all over the place. Carnegie Hall, the, what was then called the New New York Philharmonic Hall, mm-hmm. uh, Town Hall, the Brooklyn Academy of Music, the old Metropolitan Opera, which I experienced for three years, and it's exactly 50 years ago this month that the new opera, the new Metropolitan Opera, and I was there a lot in the first season. Sure. Uh, this is a, this is one of the great educations, and. The New York Public Library system, of which I am now a lion, <laughs> as you can see from that picture up there, uh, the New York Public Library system basically fed me. Uh, we, uh, I came from 
a family of five children with limited means. Right. There was nobody there to, uh, it was all goodwill, but I did not have a steady stream of, uh, of Financial money. Financial security, to do. yeah. Uh, so mm-hmm. the library was where I lived. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, uh, on, it was there before Lincoln Center Library, it was on Lexington Avenue in the 70s or mm-hmm. off Lexington Avenue. Uh, there was the Donnell branch on 53rd Street. That's where you went. If uh, you wanted to see if you could get recordings, if you could find music books, scores. Eventually, the Lincoln Center Library opened, and I spent almost every afternoon there. So that's that's New York City. I was fortunate enough to get into the High School of Music and Art Uh when I was 15. Okay. Uh, And there, I think, was the happiest time I'd ever spent in school. Many of you will know it from the movie Fame. Sure. I want to say right away that is a very, very large exaggeration. We did not all. Wear leg warmers all day long? No, no. Oh, we come did, on. We didn't. <laughs> but there's something. Uh, I think the essence is right. There okay. was an extraordinary. Uh, there was an extraordinary spirit in the school, not just the faculty, but I would say most of all, the student body. Hmm. What was a, a very, had been a, in some respects a very painful few years between the ages of 11 and 15 where I felt so profoundly different sometimes ridiculed mm-hmm. uh, alone, for, for mm-hmm. alone mm-hmm. feeling this love for this music and uh, not having many people with with whom to share it and barely even mentioning it to, to many Sure. Um, and by the way I don't think this is such a rare situation That's right. in America That's right. Uh, s- then all of a sudden there were 2,000 other kids who loved all the same things music and art Instrument, I, uh, you know, whether it was singing, playing an instrument, whatever it was, it was a wonderful atmosphere, and I think that took an enormous burden off of me within the first week of sure, school. Sure, sure. So uh, I loved those years, and of course, at that time, I, you know, I knew I wanted to conduct all the time. Now uh-huh. you can't. You, there was a conducting class. There were. I think I begged the, con- the teacher of the. The orchestra let me conduct once he did. Is, was that your first conducting experience in uh, front of a group? Yeah, so the first first move in the New World Symphony. What? Was the first one. <laughs> and then uh, I would sometimes rehearse the dress rehearsals of the choral concerts because uh-huh. the choral teacher wanted to go out into the sure and hall. And so I did actually conduct a part of the Verdi Requiem there when I was about sixteen or seventeen. But that's all. Did that just confirm everything that you had thought? I mean, just confirmed that I, mean, I wanted to that, do that's it. That's what you wanted to that's do. That's what I wanted to do. So, I think the other, the next great break was upon graduation. I had enrolled in Hunter College mm-hmm. to study music, but I really wanted to go to Juilliard. Mm-hmm. The auditions were in September. Mm-hmm. I went to Aspen. I got a scholarship for three hundred fifty dollars to go to Aspen. To the first time I really spent the summer away from home. How uh, old were you? Eighteen. 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 Uh-huh. I mean, I literally spent my entire life in New York City. Wow. Summers were spent in New York City. We, did, we didn't travel as a family. And so that was my first trip out of New York City. Mm-hmm. And in the first week, uh, I, I did get into the conducting class. George Mester, who oh, was a marvelous I teacher. Love George. Yeah. Marvelous. First-rate teacher. Yeah. And they put me up and said, okay. They gave us our repertory. Brahms' second symphony. So, mm-hmm. And they put me up. I had to do the last moment. I got up. I started to conduct. And started, and the whole sim- and the whole movement went from beginning to end. I got from beginning to end, and so they said, "Okay, the kid can conduct." So, wow! So that was that. I, don't ask me how I had absorbed all of that. Yeah, how long did you have to prepare that piece? Well, 
I mean, I mean, I you, knew, you knew it. Well, no, I knew it a few months in advance, but the, I mean, it wasn't that. I mean, I had absorbed enough about what it was to physically conduct an orchestra just by watching other people do it. Yeah. Now, that's the other great thing about New York. I saw every great conductor who came through New York. Sure. So, uh, and I was, you know, I was determined. I watched them. I would go to a concert and I would glue them. When I could, I would sneak into rehearsals at the Philharmonic Hall mm -hmm. or at Carnegie Hall. It was mm -hmm. easy to do in those days. It's impossible to do today. Mm -hmm. uh, Did you have an innate uh, feeling about what a good conductor was versus what a bad conductor was without being coached and talking oh, to people sure. about it? Yeah, just, no. I mean, no. even at that high level, I mean, you see, yeah, you, you, you could, could tell. You could, you, well, yes. You knew what you liked I, and but, what you, you didn't know, like. I, I don't know if I was right about everything, okay. but, but I, but you know, I had, I had a sense of it. Yeah. So, um, I spent one day in Hunter College, and the next day was the audition at Juilliard, mm -hmm. and I got in. I was the youngest member of the class. I was eighteen. There were conductors up until twenty-eight, twenty-nine class right there. Now I'm but sorry. Me. I'm sorry to interrupt. I don't know how a conducting audition goes. How does that? How does that uh, work? They put us in front of the orchestra. They you were given pieces you had to conduct on the sp That was part of it. Okay. You had to do. Uh, you were given Bach chorales to mm -hmm. reduce from the clefs for a score. I think there was an ear training test, and wow. that was it. I think, um, but you know, I, I managed. I got in. Jeez. I was the youngest one. It's probably the most difficult difficult year of my life because uh, our teacher Jean Morel was a French mm -hmm. uh, Frenchman very 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 uh, tough mm -hmm. very hard mm -hmm. and in my case although I think he appreciated my talent made no no compromises for my age or the fact that I was just starting mm -hmm. I mean he expected of me what he expected of everybody else right uh, so it was tough but it was great mm -hmm. and so I studied conducting at the Juilliard School I had finished all of my classes by my junior year except for one. Mm -hmm. I was very impatient. Even went to the dean, said, you know, I'd really like to leave. He said, don't leave. Yeah. You've got your whole life ahead of you. You have one class. Do your class. Get your degree. Stay here. You never know. And I, he was a particularly sympathetic man, Gideon Waldrop. And so I said, okay, I would do that. Mm -hmm. and of course, it was the best decision that he had made for me because in the course of that year, uh, the... Uh, Juilliard, I think it was called the Juilliard Opera Theater at the time, was producing La Boheme, mm -hmm. a beautiful production designed by Ming Cho Lee, right. uh, directed by Michael Kokoyanis, who of mm -hmm. course is famous for Zorba the Greek, and uh, conducted Maria Callas, who was a friend of his in uh, Medea, was directing the production. Thomas Shippers was conducting. Thomas Shippers withdrew, uh, first was not coming to rehearsals, and then withdrew about 10 days before the opening. And there was nobody, the president, of course, tried to find another conductor of his stature. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, you don't find conductors of Thomas Shippers' stature that easily. Overnight, yeah. Mm -hmm. And you don't even find many professionals <laughs> who are, you know, uh, uh, who are there and available and ready to jump in. Sure. So in the, in the interim, uh, the assistant of the president had gone to the president and said, you know, there's a kid here, knows all the operas, you know, maybe he should just do the rehearsals. And he said, okay, that's okay. And, you know, have him do the rehearsals and so I started rehearsing. I was just happy to get a chance to conduct sure, Black Boheme. Sure, beautiful. I mean, that's all, yeah, all I wanted. You know? Sure. Uh, you know, there was no deal. It was that was it. So I continued yeah. to. Well, at a certain time, time wore on. There was no conductor. The assistant kept saying, "You know, I saw him in Spoleto. He conducted a, one performance of Boris Godunov in mm -hmm. Spoleto last summer, and he 
had a big success. I think you should go with it. The president said, I'm afraid I'm going to do that. Uh, never had a student conduct a production before. Okay. I just think it's too risky. Mm-hmm. But the great fortune, great for me, was that was the year that Maria Callas was at Juilliard giving the master classes. Sure. All of which I went to, of course. And the president, Peter Menon, uh, who was a marvelous president, mm-hmm. went to Maria Callas and said, uh, there's this kid here. He's rehearsing. I hear he's very good, but I'm not sure I, I want to entrust the production to him. Would you mind going and watching him and coming back and telling me what you think? And uh, of course, I didn't know any of this was going on, but yeah. I do remember her coming in, sweeping into the room yeah. with her fur and her dark glasses. And even though she had her dark glasses on, I could feel this laser beam coming through those glasses, watching every move I made and listening to everything I said. And she lived up to exactly she, what you thought she, she would be. Yeah, she went out. She I mean, left without a word. Uh, wow. And a half an hour later, the assistant, the president, came to me and said, uh, "You're going to conduct it." And seven o'clock that night, I was doing my first stage orchestra rehearsal. So uh, I didn't know Maria Callas, of course. I'd never spoke. I would never dare speak to her. I <laughs> being in awe. But uh, she was actually very generous, very, very wonderful Supported. to me. Support mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. She came to rehearsals. She certainly gave me lots of tips, gave me lots of opinions. Wow. And, uh, but she told me that uh, that she, you know, recognized in me. She said, you know. People, they have it or they don't. Sure. And you have it. Mm-hmm. She And the assistant of the president said she had gone to Peter Menon and said, that's your man, take him, he's going to have a great future. So if it were not for Maria Callas, who knows? Or taking if, that last class. Or t- taking that I last mean, class and, taking, and listening to my dean. Yeah. So, and from there on, that, w- that, was, my, that was my big break. So from that point on, things- Is that when you t- started t- working? After that, I mean, well, had you I been gra- gigging up to that point, or no? no that no, nothing, no, nothing. Uh, well, I had conducted in Spoleto in Italy. Yes. People say Spoleto here in America, they think you're talking about Charleston. I, I'm talking about Spoleto. Okay. Which to this day I am still loyal to and still love because it was the first place I went. And in- got paid. No. Oh. No. Oh. I'll show you. Yeah. Let's see. Unfortunately. People can't hear what I'm showing you, but yeah, this, yeah, is, yeah. It's a beautiful. this is a black and white photo of the Juilliard Orchestra, and, and you can see it's Pan Am that dates right. it in uh, JFK, about to take its fly, all of us flying from New York to Rome and on our way to the Spoleto Festival. The Juilliard Orchestra went as an orchestra, and I signed up because I saw there was a place for a, an assistant conductor. Sure. And so uh, that was my, that was the, really the beginning of my life in a way. I fell in love with uh, Italy and Europe mm-hmm. that summer. I went to Salzburg subsequently for six That was weeks. the first time you'd been to Europe? First time I've been to Europe. Wow, okay. And I think I was 20, and I think of it as the beginning of my life. So uh, at, the, um, at the end of the school year, I was, uh, which of course was still two years later, that this yeah. is 1970, mm-hmm. Uh, I did conduct, I came back the next summer, uh, mm-hmm. John Carlo Minotti invited me back as an assistant, and he said, and for being an assistant, we'll let you conduct a performance. And that was Boris Godunov, which happened to be one of my favorite operas anyway. Sure. So that's that was actually, I, that was the first opera I conducted. So La Boheme was the second opera I conducted, and the third opera I conducted was in Central City, mm-hmm. uh, in that wonderful little opera house. 
I literally left after my graduation from the Juilliard School, got on a plane, uh, flew to Denver, went to Central City, mm-hmm. and conducted Falstaff. That's it. That was my that was my first paying gig. Wow! And so, uh, and that's on my mind this week because uh, I think I told you all in the chorus. Mm-hmm. But Macbeth has been an opera that I've been conducting since I was twenty three. It was right. maybe the third paying gig mm-hmm. uh-huh. <laughs> conducting an opera I had, uh-huh. and uh, it is about to become the Verdi opera I've conducted the m- most performances by the end of, of the run. It's actually going to be the next performance. It's really? The fourth performance. It's going to beat out Falstaff and Otello, which we're all tired. It's all tired right now. Yeah. Falstaff and Otello also started out very young. So yeah. what happened after that is that the Ju- the president, Peter Menon of the Juilliard School, mm-hmm. very graciously offered me to conduct one of the orchestras. Juilliard had several fully equipped symphonic orchestras mm-hmm. because my teacher was quite ill by that time and wasn't able to conduct the uh, the opportunity was there mm-hmm. and so that was my first orchestra and for the next three and a half years uh, almost exclusively all i did was to was to start building up my orchestra repertory right there in juilliard sure with orchestra that were uh were my age they were my classmates mm-hmm. uh, at first and we were all learning all of these pieces together for the first time wow that was a great that was a great experience. So as a New Yorker, I want to fast forward a little bit. I mean, you're so highly ensconced with the East Coast. What what brought you out to the West Coast? And and well, you're skipping a great big iceberg of an experience. Okay, let's do it. I, I well, I started guest conducting everywhere, everywhere, okay. U.S. and Europe. And the more I was in Europe, the more I wanted to be in Europe. So when it came time to take an orchestra, things were very different in those days. It was not easy for young conductors. Okay, in, in the v- States or in everywhere? Everywhere. Okay. everywhere. Okay. So my experience is very different than the experience that a lot of young conductors are having today. Now, mm-hmm. that being said, I did have a career. Mm-hmm. And I, this is not a complaint. I was very fortunate. I had lots of opportunities. Mm-hmm. Still, it wasn't as easy sure. as it is today. Um, I When the first opportunity to take an orchestra, I said, I'm going to do it in Europe. The first opportunity turned out to be the Rotterdam Philharmonic in Holland. And so I took that orchestra and stayed there for eight years. Mm-hmm. My next steps were to Germany, to Cologne. I was offered first to be chief conductor of the opera, but that quickly became what they call general musique director. Mm-hmm. It's a big, long word, mm-hmm. uh, but meant I was responsible not just for the opera season, but also for the symphonic season. Wow. So I had a full job there, and I, I kept that job for 13 years. And could you gig around while you were oh, at sure. that station? Okay, so you're just, free to go. and Just get. the same way I do today. Okay, good. Okay. Yeah. The system is, as a conductor, you yep. have your orchestra, your opera house, your home you, base. or both, mm-hmm. or your festival, or whatever it is, and mm-hmm. you can have several, and I've had more than one almost all of my okay. working life, mm-hmm. for, certainly for the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was 13 years with Cologne and in Cologne, and then at, during that course of that time, I was offered to become the principal conductor of the Paris Opera, so mm-hmm. I did both at mm-hmm. once. Paris, mm-hmm. I went between Paris and Cologne for seven, uh, seven years. I was nine years in Paris. Mm-hmm. When that was all done, uh, I was about to become music director of the Ravinia Festival. That's where the Chicago Symphony it's it's its home during sure. the summer, mm-hmm. uh, and I held that for eleven years. And I all of this time had been music director of the Cincinnati May Festival in Cincinnati, where I was uh, music director for thirty-seven years. I've just I just did my last year, mm-hmm. so 
there was always more than one job at a time. Yeah, and yeah, the yeah. system is you do that and then you have the rest of the time to do what you want. And so I've been doing that. But in 2004, when I was leaving Paris mm -hmm. and I had only recently left Cologne as well, I was looking forward to goofing off. Now, my idea of goofing off is to work eight hour, uh, eight, eight months a year, maybe, yeah. not 12. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but then I got a call from Placido. Uh -huh. and, and you worked with him before? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I worked with him as, way back in 1977 for okay. the first time at the Met. And so, I mean, I knew him. Yeah. Well, we knew each other in, uh, because he knew me as a fan and I knew him as a yes. tenor. So it transcended just a professional relationship. Yeah. Uh, yes, but yeah. I still think it, I mean, he, he was essentially not calling me because he knew me. Mm -hmm. he, it was a professional call. Of course. And he said, uh, you know, what would you think of coming to Los Angeles as a music director? We need a music director. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, gee, I was just sort of, I got rid of these two enormous uh, jobs and I was sort of looking forward to goofing off. He said, well, really think about it. Yeah. And he, he convinced me. He's very convincing. Yeah. Placido is very convincing yes. when he wants to be. And now I am not only grateful to Placido, I am grateful to fate that it made me come to Los Angeles because I honestly, if anybody had told me at that time that I would come to Southern California and love it, yeah. I would never have believed it. Right. I had virtually no experience in California. I'd come several times to conduct the LA Philharmonic over the years, a few times to conduct the San Francisco Symphony, mm -hmm. once on tour with the Rotterdam Philharmonic. Other mm -hmm. than that, I did not know California at all. At all. Mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. And I would never have thought that I would go there and never thought that I would like it. Yeah. So it's thanks to all of that yeah, that yeah. I came here. And now, like a lot of ex-New Yorkers, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I had spent, as I described to you, my entire childhood yeah. in New York City. Yes. And from the time I was 20, traveling. But a lot of that time in Europe and over 20 of those years, based primarily in Europe. Sure. Coming back to the States to guest conduct it, but based in Europe. Sure. And so uh, it was a surprise to me. And yeah. it was a surprise to me that I fell in love first with it, yeah. liked mm -hmm. LA and now mm -hmm. I love life. I love my job. That's number one. I love the people I work with. Mm -hmm. I think that you can see that, yeah. you and your colleagues oh, in the chorus. I love it here. I love the people. I love the atmosphere. I love the spirit in this opera company because aside from the hard work, it is a very nice opera company and a very supportive where everybody supports everybody else. That's right. Uh, that should be normal. It's not. It's extraordinary. Yeah, that's opera what I to ask you. Opera company, yeah. Well, that, uh, that's as far as I'm going to go on that subject. Opera companies are not all like that. They're, you know, they're very, lots of competition, mm -hmm. lots of uh, protection of turf, a lot of uh, hierarchy. Mm -hmm. Well, hierarchy is necessary mm -hmm. everywhere, but yeah. there's a lot of, you know, just well, one thing that I love as a chorister, uh, I've, like I said, I've been here for 11 seasons, is uh, the fact that you in no way feel us, make us feel uh, minimized in rehearsal when you're conducting something that you're particularly passionate about. You go out of your way to be scholarly about it and to engage us uh, intellectually about the history uh, behind the composition and what was happening at the time. It's, I, I mean, we all find it very fascinating. We feel valued here uh, in the way that you treat us. But you are valued. And, and it's, uh, some places don't, promote that like you said and it's uh, it's really nice to be a, a part of the team that you're describing now, I did want to go back you said you since the time you were traveling uh, at 20 you you traveled nonstop and I'm sitting here at your desk and I'm looking at your beautiful wife and your beautiful kids what are the challenges how did you I guess my question is how did you pull that off what are the challenges in being gone so much and traveling all the time and raising what looks to be a beautiful family 
Well, they're certainly beautiful women. I mean, <laughs> my wife that, and my children. How does how it do work? you manage that? I mean, uh, it's, well, yeah, negotiate constant negotiation. We did everything we could to be together as much as possible. Uh -huh. But it's is your wife in music as well? She she had a career as a singer. I and, see, and for several decades. Okay. Uh, you you we did everything we could. Uh -huh. Was it perfect? It was far from perfect. Sure, it well, cannot sure. be. No marriage. It cannot yet. be. And uh, you know, we look back now. Our daughters are twenty-seven and twenty. Mm -hmm. uh, we did the best we could. Now, mm -hmm. what are the good things for them? What are the bad things for them? You know, they had to move around. Uh -huh. I don't know how they feel about that. Uh -huh. I was away a lot of the time. Uh, my wife Jennifer had to make some sacrifices to. Mm -hmm be home. Okay. Certainly she had to be home when I was. There were times that I was there and she was off singing. Mm -hmm. uh, that's hard because I'm not so gifted as she is okay. at, at being a domestic. Uh -huh. domestic. Uh -huh. uh, so those are disadvantages for the children. On the other hand, the advantages are they uh, they had a the privilege, and I consider a privilege, and I think they do, mm -hmm. of having grown up in more than one place. Now, primarily, my older girl is old enough to remember Germany well. Mm -hmm. My younger girl's a little, it's a little more vague. Mm -hmm. uh, but they had nine years in Paris. Oh, my little girl was born in, Emma, she was born in Paris. Mm. She's been in the children's course here. You may have caught a glimpse of her very briefly. I didn't know that. Very briefly. It was oh, only, only, one, only one year. What, what was that? What show? Do you Car remember? Carmen. It was in Carmen. Oh. It was back Sure. Well, it's about eight years ago. Sure. More. Sure. So uh, she uh, she was born there. We moved back to New York when I was finished at the Paris Opera, and then they lived in New York. They, uh -huh. they, they have been exposed, and, you know, through our life, they've traveled a lot of places. They both particularly love Italy. They've uh -huh. been traveling to Italy since the time they're children. So Are they in music now? Did they express in nothing? They are both very musical. Neither mm -hmm. is in music. My older girl is studying Louisa, her name is. She's named after Louisa Miller, by mm -hmm. the way. Mm -hmm. It's spelled the same way. Nice. Uh, she is a, in her second year getting a master's in journalism in Berkeley. Wow. And she's doing beautifully. Mm -hmm. She does. She's already had uh, a lot of success. She's, she did study documentary film in NYU, and she's already even had some uh, reports on NPR. So she's... Wonderful. You know, so she's doing beautifully. My uh, Emma is in her second year as a sophomore in the new school in mm -hmm. New York City. Mm -hmm. uh, she is very inclined toward the arts. What that's going to mean, I don't know. Sure, but we're you know we're waiting to see mm -hmm. that. that. So um, again, I think I mean the having been exposed is one thing, but they are choosing as I chose mm -hmm. and as my wife Jennifer chose what we wanted to do with our lives, and we did exactly. We've done exactly. We've pursued the profession that we love, then this is the only thing I say to them, is it's, it's you're going to choose for yourself. It's your life. If you find a passion, pursue that. Mm -hmm. And even if you don't find a passion, search for the work or the, the field that in which you find the most meaning. Because work... Everybody has to work. Everybody should work. Not everybody is privileged to work. Doing and, what they love, yeah, but, especially. But not everybody is privileged to work at what they love. And if you are doing that, you have uh, you have a great... You, 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 it's beyond a privilege. 
you have one of the luckiest existences yes, blessing, that yeah. you could. That yeah. you could possibly Is this have. what brings you to Colburn? This idea, the sentiment. Uh, me. I mean, I mean, I, I I don't understand why somebody of your stature. Yeah, sorry. Is is so committed? I mean, other than I, I guess it's just hard to find people that really do what they believe in. Frankly, that I don't know how else to put it. Well, if you're talking about your commitment to, to education, yeah. yes, I am committed to education, yeah. uh, and that takes many 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 forms. I doubt it will take the form of my actually being a professor and giving a course because I, I don't see any situation, at least at the moment, that I would ever stay in one place for about. Long enough to take the responsibility for students. I have chosen the route of master classes of going to conservatories to maybe give a concert. We are, and I think, but the the Colburn School is different because, first of all, I give you the opportunity to mention that to your listeners right now. on very October the eighth and ninth because it's across the street. Sure, we will have two days symposium. This is our second international symposium where we invite classes, writers, musicologists, experts who, in one way or the other. Mm -hmm. uh, this was have, uh, something this important was to formed uh, to in cooperation with the this subject school, mm -hmm. uh, and also the foundation. Have, I mean, luminaries like Alex Ross, foundation. like uh, Jeremy uh, Eichler, with the, uh, the Colbert School, and through the generosity of Marilyn Searing, whom you know, aspects has, so, mm -hmm. of music mm -hmm. who speaks over the course of two days. October 8th and October 9th, I have to squeeze a performance of Macbeth into that, <laughs> but I will do that. <laughs> and so I'll be over there most of the time. I, I will be giving the keynote address but Fantastic. I think the uh, this is something again pursue it on the website going to, to going to the Colburn website sure and I think it's very very well worth it why do I feel this is important because I feel that education of the public is as important if not more important yes. than developing a next generation of musicians yes and I say that not because it's not important to teach musicians it is but because in America we have a paradox, we are producing and have been producing for decades probably the highest degree of young musicians are conservatories. Mm -hmm. We have more great orchestras, symphony orchestras in this country, uh, whereas there were only a few opera companies in this country when I was born. Mm -hmm. There are now many. We have more great musicians, more great institutions of music uh, probably than anywhere. This will eventually be surpassed numerically, no question, by the Chinese. Mm -hmm. But for the moment, that is the case. Now, mm -hmm. what's the paradox? The paradox is I don't know one institution in classical music that is not fighting to keep an audience. And that is the biggest challenge. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I have two missions in life, aside from my day job, which sure. is yeah. conducting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one is, of course, the Recovered Voices mission, re trying to restore to the repertory the works that were suppressed uh, in Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. And the bigger mission is to reach as many people in the United States, and frankly, in the world, sure. as possible, and to rekindle uh, a love of classical music where once upon a time was in the mainstream of our education and has fallen out of the mainstream of our education, not through any fault of its own, mm -hmm. in the sense that not through the fault of the music itself, right. but because of our failure to teach it. And so it's a mission for me to reach the public. That's why I give my pre-performance talks. Mm -hmm. 
I imagine in the chorus, you're not able to get out there very often. No, but I'll tell you, my mom is, and she loves them. Good. Well, you can watch. You can watch them on the. They do get. Sure. They do YouTube. record one of them mm-hmm. and they put it up there. But, mm-hmm. but uh, that's why I do that. Yeah. And I I feel great appreciation coming back, because now as a rule we have half the audience. Out that's right. And so I know that they're getting something out of. I certainly enjoy doing it. But it's important that it be done. Yeah. Well, Maestro, I cannot thank you enough for spending so much time with me today. It's been a real pleasure. Omar, it's a pleasure to see you in another aspect here, and I'll be looking forward to seeing you on stage at our next performance. Thanks, Maestro. Thank you. Well, there you have it, folks. Maestro James Conlon, thank you for being so candid and nice with me, Maestro. You know, you're a formidable dude. And uh, that's kind of the, the point of my show, I guess, is to, to get people at the uh, tops of their careers and just have a nice chat with them. So thanks for accommodating me. Hope you all have a great uh, rest of your week. Have a wonderful summer. I am. My son is uh, at Grandma and Grandpa's, has been for two nights. It's really strange. It's a, you know, for you parents out there, you'll understand. It's a two-edged sword. It's great to have the break. I get to spend quality one-on-one time with my daughter, who uh, has had to share her parents uh, with her brother since the time she was born. So it's been a nice treat for everybody. But boy, I'll tell you, I really miss William. Uh, some of you already know that we sleep in the same room because my wife is still nursing our daughter and uh, our daughter wakes up, you know, three or four times a night. So I get a little extra sleep and, uh, I read to my son at night and, uh, put him down to bed. And then I go down and watch TV and hang out with my wife for a little bit. And then when I come back up, I pick him up and put him in his bed, which is next to mine. And I lay down in, in the warmth of his body. I like to think of it as a remembrance of my son. I know it's not going to last forever. So I really uh, pay attention to those things. And then every morning at around 7, I hear uh, stomp, stomp, stomp. And then he jumps into my bed. And it's just it's grand. It really is. I think you parents will, will get that. And so I haven't had that for a couple of days. Like I said, two-edged sword. Enjoy the rest of your week. Always remember to be kind to one another. We need a little bit more kindness in, the, uh, in our country right now in particular. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time. You like long walks and you wear clean pants, genius. Get on to my show.